Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. The story is told of a man walking along a California beach when he found a golden lamp. He rubbed it and out jumped to this genie. The genie said, I'm tired. You're the fourth person who has rubbed this lamp this week. You're not going to get three wishes, only one. The man thought, one wish, hmm. I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, and now I can afford it, but I'm afraid to fly, and I'll get seasick if I take a boat. So he said to the genie, build a bridge from here to Hawaii so I can drive there and go on vacation. The genie said, come on, do you know how many miles that is? All the steel girders it would take all the way to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and all that concrete? This is totally impractical. You have to think of something else. The guy thought, well, I've been married and divorced three times, and my wives always said I didn't understand them. So he said, I wish I could understand just one woman to know what she is feeling inside, to know why she is crying, to know what she really means when she says one thing but means something else, to know how to make her feel loved and cherished. The genie looked back at him and said, You want the bridge to be two lanes or four lanes? Scripture does give some clues to baffled genies and confused husbands, which we've been looking at this month. Today, we focus on a wife's heart-driven need for her husband to take the lead spiritually. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 9 of Mission-Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. In this episode, we explore two biblical texts that help identify what a wife needs in a spiritual leader. We also identify the way the biblical covenantal view of marriage is so much richer than the consumer view of marriage that is becoming more common today. This vital understanding might be helpful to pass on to the rising generation. So first, she needs the security of your covenantal commitment to your marriage. What does this mean? By way of contrast, the prevailing view of marriage in our culture today might be summed up by New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope in her article, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. She writes, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring the most satisfaction to the individual may sound counterintuitive. I mean, after all, isn't marriage about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. Marriage used to be about us. Now it is about me. Now it is seen as a private arrangement for the mutual romantic fulfillment of each other. One of the most widely held beliefs in our culture today is that romantic love is all important to have a fulfilling life. But that romantic love never lasts. As one wife said about her upcoming marriage, I'm marrying him because I'm in love with him. But if we ever fall out of love, I won't hesitate to divorce him. Today, traditional views of marriage are deemed to be oppressive, even social constructs, especially for women, oppressing them. While the new me marriage seems to be liberating. But this new approach to marriage tragically views it as a consumer relationship. Tim Keller observes, 
Throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. Such relationships last only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the consumer's needs are more important than the relationship. Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, marriage is increasingly seen as a consumer relationship. When we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship is not bringing me enough benefit, when it feels like we are consistently not getting back as much love and affirmation as we are contributing to the relationship, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. The tragedy about this way of thinking is that every romance goes through ebbs and flows when one of the partners needs to give more to the relationship than he or she is receiving. That is simply the way life is. The opposite of a consumer relationship is a covenantal relationship. These are relationships that are binding on us. In a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. For example, the parent-child relationship is actually a covenantal one. The parent may get little emotionally out of caring for an infant, but the binding obligations of parenting are universally accepted. Why? It might be said because society still considers the parent-child relationship to be a covenantal one not a consumer one. Let's look more deeply into why a covenantal view of marriage is paramount to a wife's security. First, we note that this is the kind of relationship that God created marriage to be in the first place. In Genesis 2, 24 through 25, we read, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The Hebrew word for hold fast to literally means glued together to one another. The word means to bind, that's glue, a person to his promise, his commitment made in a covenant. In fact, it is frequently used in Scripture for the covenant commitment of God and his people to each other. For example, when Joshua led several of the tribes of Israel in a ceremony of covenant renewal, he commanded in 22.5, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to, that is, be glued to him. The glue that binds husband and wife together is not just the promises they made horizontally to each other, but promises they made vertically to God. For example, Proverbs 2.17 describes a wayward wife as one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, both horizontal and vertical. The fact that a wedding covenant is made both vertically and horizontally is the reason the traditional wedding service has both a set of questions from the minister and vows to each other. Typically, the question asked to establish the husband and wife's vows to God is, Will you have this woman to be your wife, and do you pledge your faithfulness to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and tenderness, to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God 
in the holy bond of marriage. Then later, they join hands, face each other, and vow to each other. Dr. Keller points out that the marriage covenant is a relationship far more intimate and personal than merely a legal business relationship. Yet at the same time, it is far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feelings and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. But Putting obligations on marriage by making it covenantal stifles romance and sexual passion, doesn't it? At least that's the argument of some. For example, a hundred years ago, British philosopher Bertrand Russell argued that sex can flourish only as it is free and spontaneous. It tends to be killed by the thought of it as a duty. The biblical view of romance and love is radically different. Devotion to one another is not rooted in passing romantic feelings but grounded in the security of covenant promises of lasting future commitment to one another. Marital love needs a covenantal framework of binding obligation because the naked joining of lives and bodies renews, strengthens, and nurtures love only in the safety and security of binding forever commitments. Why might this be? Well, first, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out, when we fall in love, we have a natural inclination not just to express affection, but to make promises to each other. I will always love you, we say, when we are at the height of passion. And we know that the other person, if he or she is in love with us, will want to hear those words. Real love, the Bible says, instinctively desires permanence. And covenant wedding vows are promises of future love. Perhaps you've attended a wedding where you heard vows like this. I love you with all my heart and want to share my life with you. The bride and groom were expressing their current love for each other. Their words might be moving, but that is not what wedding vows are. Such vows are not a declaration of present love. That can be safely assumed, but a mutually binding promise of future love. In a wedding, you stand up before God and all the important institutions of society, your family and friends, and you promise in the future to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. This is the security of a covenant relationship. This is the security your wife needs to flourish. Another reason successful marriage needs the security of covenantal promises is pointed to by Christian ethicist Lewis Meads in an article entitled Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. He makes profound observations about our identity. He says, some people ask who they are and expect their feelings to tell them. But feelings are flickering flames that fade after every fitful stimulus. Some people ask who they are and expect their achievements to tell them. But the things we accomplish always leave a core of our character unrevealed. Then Smeeds argues that one of the best ways to answer the question, who we are, is to look at the promises we have made and which shape our lives 
because we are keeping them. Tim Keller further reasons, since promising is the key to who we are, to our identity, it is the very essence of marital love. Why? Because it is our promises that give us a stable identity. And without a stable identity, it is impossible to have a stable relationship. A stable relationship built upon keeping the covenant promise of marriage is the only way to meet the deepest needs of a wife for security. The unpredictable future is more secure because my husband vowed in front of everyone to always unconditionally love me. What does this mean for you and me as husbands? Never view our relationship with our wife as a consumer relationship, measuring what I'm getting out of this against what I am putting into this. Our vow is to God to love this woman unconditionally. The source of our motivation to pour out our love for her does not depend upon what we get back. It is rooted in a commitment to keep our word, to keep our promise. It is rooted in experiencing the unconditional agape love of Christ myself and then giving it to her. When I catch criticism or don't feel valued, I am tempted to emotionally withdraw into my man cave and sulk. But remaining there turns my marriage into a consumer relationship. I am not getting back what I am putting in, so I stop paying out. For a wife to flourish, she must know that our love for her does not come and go like the wind, here one day, there tomorrow. Rather, it is as stable and predictable as the rising sun. Our feelings do ebb and flow, but covenantal love is an act. It grows out of an unwavering commitment to love her always, not my feelings. It is the only human love that can make her heart feel secure and it is the reason I must walk with Christ. The second part of being a spiritual leader at home that our wife needs is our full partnership at home with her. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are joint heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In the Greco-Roman world to which Peter sent his letter, women were demeaned for at least two reasons. First, the Roman world valued brute strength above nearly all other virtues. By such strength, after all, Roman legions had conquered the world. The woman was the weaker vessel, using brute strength as the measure. But Roman culture also elevated reason above feelings. Cold logic was supreme. It was to rule the lesser passions, just as men were made to rule lesser beings, like women and slaves, on the Roman view. New Testament scholar Richard Lenski gives us the cultural background behind Paul's identification of women as weaker vessels. By Roman standards, he says, the wife is the weaker vessel. Paganism always tends to abuse her on this account. Her rights are reduced often greatly. Her status 
is lowered. Often, shamefully, heavy loads are put on her. She is made man's plaything or slave. The fact that she is weaker is always exploited. Peter, in contrast, knowing that Eve was created the full equal of Adam as one bearing the image of God, and that women are full and equal members of the body of Christ, would have none of this polluted, abusive, corrupt Greco-Roman thinking in the church. He makes three points. Number one, your wives are joint heirs with you of the grace of life. The Greek word used here adds son, which means with, to the word inheritor. So we're co-inheritors. So the emphasis is on equally sharing in the grace of life, the working out of God's grace in our everyday lives. Men can fail to treat their wives as full partners on the home front in two ways, either by being too passive on the home front or by not properly weighing her opinion about decisions you make on the home front. Because of the way she's created, a wife naturally defaults to concern for her home, even if she spends much of her time away in the work world. A wife sees her home as a reflection of herself. If her home is in constant disrepair, for example, she feels ashamed when others visit. Since a woman's home is such an extension of herself, when her husband doesn't seem to pay much attention to her honeydew list, she receives the message that she isn't that important to her husband. Being joint heirs of the grace of life also means stepping up and being the father that your kids need involved with their kids. In one study, only 4% of teen girls felt that they could go to their fathers about a serious problem. In another study, when teens under stress were asked where they would go for help in a crisis, dads were 48th on the list. 48th? That must have been behind every cousin, neighbor, friend, and teacher that this teen had. Being a full partner with her at home means being on the same page with your wife when it comes to disciplining the children and not undermining her authority. It means demanding that your kids respect their mother. It includes being the spiritual leader of the family. Our wife is God's gift to us, a set of glasses to bring into focus for us, meeting our responsibilities at home. She usually feels the weight of these responsibilities more than we do. We get distracted with work and other projects, but her radar detects things that need attention in the children. The result is that many times wives feel very alone in their concerns for their home and family. This is the loneliness of carrying heavy responsibility more or less by yourself. She needs to feel that she and her husband are both carrying the responsibilities for their marriage, home, and family. After all, marriage to her means having a companion beside her as she travels through life with her husband, meeting their responsibilities together. Peter's next point is that instead of dishonoring her because she is a woman, a godly man is to bestow honor on his wife because she is a woman. This so-called weaker vessel just happens to have the abilities and strengths that the male gender desperately needs. Instead of demeaning wives for being like fine crystal instead of clay mugs or being intuitive when we are logical, or being shaped by feelings instead of linear reasoning, godly men cry out with the French, Viva la différence, 
at the very point at which abusive men call her weak, godly men are to protect and cherish her. One of the best ways to honor her is to carry your weight as the spiritual leader so the crushing burden of responsibility doesn't fall on her but you. In Rosberg's book, The Five Love Needs of Men and Women, wives ranked spiritual intimacy as their third greatest need after unconditional love and emotional intimacy. Her husband's commitment to Christ is, of course, the foundation of the trust she needs to have in him. She needs to trust her husband in five ways, his own walk with God, his support of her spiritual growth, his spiritual upbringing of the children, his decisions that affect the family, and his spiritual leadership in the home. Bearing this leadership responsibility frees her to be the necessary ally you need, the partner with clear vision on the home front who thrives in that assisting role. Peter further guides husbands regarding their treatment of her weaknesses, point number three. He says, in essence, if you don't treat her weaknesses with grace, God will not treat your weaknesses with grace. He will not answer your prayers asking for help with your weaknesses. We are to honor, not demean our wife's weaknesses, says Peter, so that your prayers may not be hindered. A few chapters later, Peter gives the secret that explains why this particular failure of a husband not treating his wife's weaknesses with grace would lead to his own prayers being unanswered. In 5.5, Peter writes, For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is a husband's pride that causes him to be so critical of his wife's weaknesses and unwilling to grant her the grace to need Christ's help. If I'm a bridegroom full of criticism for my wife's weaknesses instead of grace, why should I expect my bridegroom, Christ, not to be full of criticism toward me instead of grace? The pride that looks down on my wife's weaknesses is the pride that will keep my prayers from being answered. Here is a series of questions that you might use to fully engage with your wife on the home front. Of these household projects, which ones are the highest priority to you? What regular tasks in caring for the family do you dislike the most or find most difficult? In what household tasks do you feel the most alone? When I am seeking to help you carry your load, which task would you like me to do for you and which task would you prefer that I do with you? What are your biggest concerns about the kids right now? What are some of the things sometimes you find yourself worrying about? What are the most pressing family problems that we need to address? How are we doing in the training of our children? What areas do we need to improve on? What character training needs to be our focus right now with each one of the kids? What are the specific things you see that we need to pray about concerning each one of the kids? Finally, when is the best time to build time to pray together into our schedule? To summarize this episode, we identified two characteristics of the spiritual leader that a wife's heart craves. First, a man who does not think of their marriage as a consumer relationship, constantly wondering if his expenditure of emotional energy and effort is paying him back enough to make it worth it. 
Such an approach to marriage makes the whole relationship terribly insecure, especially for a wife who may leave the labor force temporarily to have her husband's children. Instead, a wife needs a man who understands that marriage is a covenant where promises are made to love and cherish each other till death us do part. Agape love is not a fluctuating feeling, but a commitment to God and our spouse to love and cherish her through an act of our will when we don't feel like it. Such unselfish love flows best when husbands are filling their tanks with the unconditional love of Christ and the brotherly love of a battle buddy. The second part of spiritual leadership is being a full partner on the home front, neither abandoning her by being passive, because as a woman she will default to concern about her home and children, nor demeaning her as your full partner because of her weaknesses. Rather, it is seeking to hear what she sees. For further prayerful thought, number one, in your own words, how would you explain to a friend what the difference is in viewing marriage as a consumer relationship versus covenantal relationship? See your show notes for additional questions. This week's past highlight series is entitled How Your Leadership Can Have Impact at Home and Elsewhere. This is back in Season 1, Episodes 37, 38, and 39. That's 71920, 72520, and 8220. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. Next week, as we continue our series entitled Understanding and Meeting the Needs of a Wife's Heart, our topic is strengthening your wife for her spiritual battles. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about it, as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.